Morning, everybody. Nice to see you today. Our key scripture today comes from Exodus chapters 5 and 6. It's a passage that we read last week, and we're going to look at it again here this morning. From the book of Exodus chapters 5 and 6. Moses and Aaron had approached Pharaoh and told Pharaoh to let God's people go. Pharaoh said no. He was not willing to do that, and he increased the amount of work uh, that the Israelite slaves had to uh, produce at the time. The Israelite overseers realized they were in trouble when they were told, you are not to reduce the number of bricks required of you for each day. When they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them, and they said, may the Lord look on you and judge you. You have made us obnoxious to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Moses returned to the Lord and said, Why, Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? Is this why you have sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble on this people, and you have not rescued your people at all. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appear to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself fully known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, where they resided as foreigners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord. And I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land that I swore With uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. I want you to take a moment and to consider the relationships in your life that are important to you. Maybe a friendship immediately comes to mind. Maybe a marriage. Maybe your relationship with your children. And I just want to ask you one simple question. Are any of those meaningful relationships easy? No, right? None of them are easy. And if we look for a second or think for a second about the most meaningful relationships in our lives, we see that those relationships are up and down, back and forth, that we have times that are really good. We have times that are terrible. We have times where we wonder if we can make it another day with this person. There are times where we don't want to be around this person ever again. And there are times where our heart overflows with love and gratitude for these relationships. But none of these relationships are easy. None of them are easy, and I think there's a reason for that. And the reason is that the relationships that are most meaningful to us, that touch our hearts, that engage us as people, they are complex. There is a level to them when you bring two lives together that causes us to grow and stretch and move and adapt in ways that we're not used to. 
For those of you who have been here with us over these past several weeks as we have been exploring the story, the story that is about God and his relationship with man, I think there is something hopefully that is sticking out to you as we go. And that is this. We see this in this reading. God desperately wants to be known. He wants to be known. He wants to be known as the God and creator of this world. But beyond that, he wants to be known in an intimate way. In a way that is deep and meaningful. It is, you could say, I think, the cry of his heart. And it is something that perhaps has gotten lost in the story that we are so accustomed to hearing and reading. That God created us to be in relationship with him, that God wanted to be known and understood and viewed as this great giver and creator and lover of mankind. And yet we have seen over and over again in the story that this desire of God's heart has been denied. We have made other choices, right? We have chosen other things. We have moved away from this God who wants us to know him. And yet at the same time, we have seen in some sort of remarkable way that I have to be honest with you, I don't totally understand that God continues to pursue us and seek relationship with us. Even though by this point in the story, the second book of the Bible, we have already walked away from him multiple times in multiple ways. That God still pursues us and wants to have relationship with us. Why? Because he wants to be known by us. He wants to be loved by us. And he wants to love us with his whole heart. We are made in the image of God. And what is one of the deepest desires of our hearts? To be known and to be loved. Yes? Yes. We get that from God. And what is truly remarkable about the story is that God, though he is denied and though he is hurt and though he is left behind and though he is replaced by other things, God continues to ask us, to beg us, to invite us to know Him. And I, for one, am grateful for that this morning. Throughout the rest of the service this morning, I want you to just engage in one exercise. As we're singing these songs, as we're praying, as we're taking communion together, I want you to think, what are three words that you would use to describe God? You can write them down on a piece of paper. We have There's paper and pencils and stuff in front of you. You can just keep it in your mind. But I want you to think about that over the next 30 minutes or so. What are three words that you would use to describe God? Who is the God that you know here this morning? Okay, so... Uh, For those of you who have been with us, we have been uh, going uh, over the story. And it's God's story as it's told in in the Bible. And we have... Uh, trying to, we have been trying to look at the story in a slightly different way, looking at it as uh, a story with plot, with characters, with things that are driving and pushing the story forward. 
Uh, last week we talked about uh, the exodus from Egypt and how God uh, sent Moses to lead his people out of slavery and to take them to the land that he had promised them. And so there is a pretty big obvious question that we now have to ask as we come to this point in the story. And that big obvious question is, now what? How many of you have taken big family trips before where you decided to drive an unreasonable distance <laughs> together as a family? Have any of you ever done that? Yes. Yeah? You remember those times? <clears throat> With Mike and Trellis, yeah. you say. Yes. yes. Uh, my family, my mom is from Arkansas. And uh, we, so we would drive from Fresno to Little Rock uh, about every two years or so. Uh, the three of us in the back of whatever car it was we had at the time. We had a station wagon with wood paneling for a long period of time, right? So we had all those times, and we would stop at all these different places. We'd stop at Albuquerque, New Mexico, and we'd stop somewhere in uh, Texas or Oklahoma or wherever it was. But you know what it's like when <clears throat> you're a little kid and you're in the car, and your parents have told you it's going to take three days to get to wherever it is that you're going to go. And you get in the car, and you've been in the car for about an hour, right? And there's a question that leaps to mind as you've been in the car for about an hour, and that question is what? Are we there yet? Now, here's the thing. It is actually impossible, given the laws of time and space, to have traveled three days in an hour, right? I mean, we just can't do that in our little station wagon, go that far. But that is the question because you realize on one hand that you're on a journey, right? That you're going somewhere, that it's going to take time to get to that place. But you just want to go ahead and get there. And you know what's really fun is being on the receiving end and watching people that have been in the car for three days pull into your driveway and like peel themselves out of the car right? The, the haze that comes over everything, like the first thing people want to do is shower, right? When they get there, we find ourselves in this kind of situation. What happens next? Now, if you remember uh, from some of the background that we've talked about uh, from last, from last week, okay, we're going to go over this very quickly. Uh, the people of God, uh, they remember they went to Egypt in the time of Joseph, and Joseph, uh, through God's power, helped to sort of save the world from famine, right? But then, uh, and, and the Israelites, they come and they settle there in Egypt, but they're basically, you know, one, you know, 60, 70-member family. They settle in Egypt, and then they start to grow and prosper there. And they get bigger, and they get bigger, and they get bigger, right? But they're living in someone else's land. And generations pass, that they're living in this place, so to where historians now estimate that at the point of the Exodus, there were 600,000 male adults within the nation of Israel. And a lot has changed since the time of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. So they've, they've been there, they basically have been living as Egyptians, they become slaves, so now they're Egyptian slaves. They're not really a nation yet, they're just this family that has grown in this place. And so God comes and reintroduces himself to them through the person of Moses. And they, God leads them out of Egypt, and so they've left Egypt. Right? God has delivered them from Pharaoh. They've crossed through the Red Sea. They get to the other side, and now what? Now what do they do? 
And there's this problem. If you remember, we talked about it a lot last week. There's this problem. God wants them to be known. God wants them to know him, I should say. And we saw it over and over again in the passages that we read last week. We saw it in the passage that we read this morning. I will do this, and then you will know that I am God. It is I, the Lord, who am doing this. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. Then you will know. Then you will know. So they get out there, and the question is, what are they supposed to know? about him at this point. And how does the one true God get to know his people again under these circumstances? They're out in the wilderness without a home. They don't really understand or know where it is that they're going. God has led them to this place. So what needs to happen in order for the story to progress? So God wants to be known. He wants to be in relationship with his people And he wants them to be his. He wants to be their God. But they have lived apart for so long. So two major things have to happen at this point in order for the story to progress. Number one, the Israelites have to become the people of God once more. Remember, it's a bit of a stretch to say that they are totally God's people because they've lived apart for so long. They have to learn about who God is And they have to reform an active identity as the chosen people of God. Now they may know from generations past, from things that were passed down, yes, we are the chosen people of God, right? But it's hard to live that message when you're slaves, being held down by the most powerful nation on earth. We are the chosen people of God, are we? Because, I mean, look at who we are. We're not even in control of ourselves, so how can we be the chosen people of God? They have to learn about who God is, and they have to have this identity formed in them again that they are the chosen people of God. Now, do not underappreciate the importance of this step. One of the biggest problems with the way that we read the Bible story is that we look at what happens and we put our current sensibilities back onto the story that we're reading. So we look back at this story and we say, well, this shouldn't be hard at all for them to discover that they're the people of God, for God to show them how wonderful and awesome he is. I mean, look at what just happened. He led them out of Egypt. He destroyed Pharaoh and his armies. It should be painfully obvious to them who God is and what God has done. And then we do this little nutmeg that we like to throw in there, right? This little chestnut. We don't get to see God. And here God is right in front of them. So how could they not know who God is and understand how powerful he is? This is how we sometimes read this story. We impress our current sensibilities on situations that happen to real people thousands of years ago. But we have to let this story unfold as it will and learn about these two characters. Because within this story, we see God and man trying to come back together again. And it's not a very easy road for them to get to know each other once more. But we learn so much about God and man through this particular story. So now, the second thing they have to do, one, they have to get to know God again and have this identity as the chosen people. And the second thing they have to do is they have to become a nation. Remember, they are basically wandering gypsies at this point. 
with no land, with no home. They're in the middle of nowhere. They don't have any sort of organizational structure, which I know that's a weird thing to say. They don't have any sort of organizational structure. But remember, 600,000 adult males. So this is a huge group of people that have left their homes, most of their property, all this behind, and they are just out in the middle of nowhere. Who are they going to be? How are they going to make any decisions as a group of people? How do you organize that many people out in the middle of nowhere? So there's a lot of work to be done. What has to happen first in order for them to take the next step forward? What does God need them to know about him? Now, that's an important question. Okay, If God is reintroducing himself to them, What does God need them to know about him? Where does he start? Now, I asked you earlier to think of three or so words that you would use to describe God. What are some of the words that you came up with to describe God? Loving. Loving. Okay, Virgil? Loving, inviting, and forgiving. Loving, inviting, and forgiving. Daphne? Redeemer, love, holy. Redeemer, love, holy. Good. John? Righteousness and grace. Okay, Vera? Creator and life. Creator and life. Lover, Dan? I mean, so, savior. Savior. Savior and spiritual and love. Savior and spiritual love. Okay, all really good ideas. But you know what is, is really interesting? These are not the things that God reveals about himself in this story. He, ha- he starts some, and this is, this is something we need to wrap our minds around a little bit, Okay. God starts somewhere that we would never start with him, describing him today. We wouldn't. We would not start at the place that God himself starts. The first and most important thing that God wants to establish about himself is that he is God. Okay, remember, we've, we talked about the name that he gives to Moses. At the burning bush, I am, right? He gives him this name, that he is God. They have seen him do mighty things. They understand that he is their deliverer. They understand that he is the God of their ancestors. But what do they need to know about him now? And, and here's where we have to understand where they came from a little bit to understand why God shows this piece of himself to them. They lived in Egypt for generations, Right? And Egypt is a polytheistic society. They believe in lots of different gods. There's the god of the sun, there's the god of the moon, there's the god of the Nile, there's the god of the harvest, there's the god of all these different sorts of things, right? And so they've lived in this polytheistic society where all these gods cover all these different bases. And so the first thing that God has to do, and he has to do this for their sake, is he has to establish that he is different than all of the gods they've heard about over these generations. He is not the same thing that they have seen over and over again. So our first reading this morning. Then Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. 
Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. The Lord said to Moses, I am going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. Then Moses told the Lord what the people had said. And the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day, because on that day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, be careful that you do not approach the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain is to be put to death. They are to be stoned or shot with arrows. Not a hand is to be laid on them. No person or animal shall be permitted to live. Only when the ram's horn sounds a long blast may they approach the mountain. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. The people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. Okay, there's a lot that happens there in that one particular thing. But what does God want the people to understand about him? Because he does all of this on purpose. Okay, this is not some sort of accident or some sort of half-cocked idea that God goes through. He does this on purpose. He appears this way on purpose. And he wants them to know a couple of things. Number one, the whole earth is his. How does he demonstrate that the whole earth is his? He has this cloud that descends on the mountain, and then what happens? The earth shakes at his presence. The earth shakes at his presence. The whole earth is his. However, these people that are here, they are especially his. They are called out from the population of the earth. And so he comes in this great display of natural power, something that cannot be duplicated by anything else on the earth. And he is going to descend. He descends on this mountain, and there he will speak to Moses. And so the cloud envelops the mountain. The earth shook. And God said he did this for a reason, too. He's going to come down to this place. He's going to cover the mountain. The earth will shake and he will speak just to Moses. Why? So this way, the people will listen to Moses when Moses comes and speaks to them on behalf of God. Okay? So I'm going to come down here. I'm going to show my power. I'm going to speak to you. You'll go speak to the people and they'll know that they can trust you because you're the only one that can come up to this mountain. In fact, here's the deal. If anyone comes and touches the base of the mountain, they shall be what? Stoned. 
killed. Now here's something crazy. Who's supposed to kill them? They are. God's not going to strike them down. They are supposed to kill the people that go and touch the base of the mountain with arrows or with stones. Interestingly enough, you are not to touch them. You are to kill them from afar. Why? Because they have come too close to God. They have come, they have come too close to God. To the base of the mountain, the top of which is where God is resting. They have come too close to God. If animals come too close, you are to do what? To kill them too. And do not touch them either. Because they have come too close to God. Why is it that God gives this command? Is he just being mean? Is it arbitrary? What does he want them to know? He is God. God. Capital G, God. Not little g, God. Capital G, God. And here's something we don't start here. We say Savior, we say loving, we say all these relational things. You know what? One of the first things God tells his people is, you do not come too close to me. Because I am God. You do not touch this God. You do not just approach this God. You have to be invited to come before him. You have, to, you have to be invited to come before him because he is so great, he is so mighty, he is so powerful that there is a part of him that is unapproachable. Well, that sounds wrong. I know. You're already thinking, well, how can God be unapproachable? There is a part of God that is unapproachable, that is completely set apart from us. That we cannot just go up to him. And you know what? The plan works. Did you hear what happened there at the end? The people see the power of God and they were what? Afraid. The earth shook for crying out loud. They were afraid and they say, Moses, why don't you go? I'll stay here. You go ahead and talk to God and then we'll listen to you when you come back. Which is exactly what God said he wanted to have happen. He's going to get the information and bring, us back, bring it back to the people. But this is the first thing that God needs them to know. Look, in Egypt, you could go to temples of various gods. And you could walk in and you could go up to a statue and you could touch the statue. You could make offerings to whatever it was based on what your need was. If you wanted your crops to grow, you'd go to this god. If you wanted something else, you'd go to this god. You could walk up to these things and just look at them and touch them and be with them. And the first message that God has is, I am not like those things. Things is what they are. I am not like them. You do not just walk up to me. I am the Lord. Leads us to the second thing that God needs to have happen. Okay? He needs to establish, secondly, once he's established that he is God, he needs to establish what it means for them to be his people. Now, that seems like a weird thing to say, too. 
But understand this, you live in this place that's not yours. You're serving Pharaoh. You're serving all these Egyptian gods and all these different things that are in place. What does it mean to actually serve these gods? Well, there's really only one Egyptian god that has any relevance to their life when they're living in Egypt, right? It's Pharaoh who can tell them what to do, who can make them do all these different things. But all these other gods are just like these token things. And so do you have to really pay attention to these foreign gods in order to get what you want? Well, no, right? As long as they're making Pharaoh happy, then everything's okay. But this is different. It means something for them to belong to the one true God, the one real God. The one who you cannot just approach. Being a child of the one true God is a different story altogether. You will look a certain way. You will act a certain way. You will be formed by God to be his people. And so this is what he gives to Moses when Moses goes up on the mountain. He is going to describe to Moses what it means to be in relationship with a living God. Okay? Because clearly we need rules, right? If you can't just walk up to him, then what are you supposed to do? If the penalty for getting too close to him is death, then how do you live in relationship with this God and make him happy? How do you live this out? And so God gives him commands. And look what he says first. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or, in, or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments." You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not, will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. We call these the Ten Suggestions. We call these the Ten Commandments. These are the first, it's fascinating, these are the first ten things that God decides to give to his people. What is the basis for the Ten Commandments? What is the foundation? What is the bedrock on which it is built? I am God. I am God. And so where does he start? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. 
He brings up this whole deliverance thing, which is good. But what is the next thing he says? You shall have no other gods before me. And then he talks about how they cannot make an image of him or of anything else. That's a fascinating one. We want to jump right to, well, they have all these other images. But think about what it is that God is saying. Why can they not make an image of God? Because it's not possible, for one thing. This is not a God who can be captured as a bird, as a cow, as a horse, as an ox. This is not a God whose image can be boiled down into something pretty. This is a God who is more than that. And therefore, you cannot make images of him because if you try to make images of him, you will just begin worshiping those things themselves. And God tells us something very important. He is what kind of God? A jealous God. He is paying attention to where your heart lies. And he does not want you to make images of anything. One, they cannot contain him. And two, they will lead you to other gods. You're not even supposed to misuse his name. Because God will not forget if you misuse his name. And how long is God's memory? Real long. He will punish from generation to generation just as he will reward from generation to generation. And by the way, your time is not your own either. You will take an entire day and you will dedicate that day to God. And you, your family, your friends, foreigners, your animals will not work that day. Every living thing in the nation of God's people will stop and recognize God. Now, what is God trying to say to them in this? This idea that they won't have other idols, that they won't have other images, that they won't have other gods, we take it for granted, but this is something that's very challenging for them. Because again, they came from a society where there were all kinds of other gods. But God says he is the one God who takes care of everything and there shall be no gods before him. He demands ultimate respect from them. You are to set these things apart for him. And then, in the second part, of the Ten Commandments, he gives completely different directions altogether. But they are directions for what kind of living? It's a moral code, right? It's a basic moral code that he lays out before them. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not covet, honor your father and mother. He gives these things to them. These are the kinds of people that you're supposed to be. You're going to live this way. They will not be a lawless group taking whatever they want, but instead they will live a certain way as God calls them to. And the response of the people to these laws is appropriate. When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice. Everything the Lord has said we will do. Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. So it's going to plan, right? He reveals himself. 
He shows how powerful he is. He gives them some rules for living. Everything is going just like it should. So it makes sense then that the people of God are fully understanding what it means to be gods, right? No. They don't, they don't get it. They don't understand. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Fascinating. This is fascinating, okay? What is their basic argument? Moses has been gone a long time. He might be dead. We need a new leader. So let's make gods to go before us. What is right in front of them? A mountain with the presence of God resting on it. And their response is, this is taking too long. Let's, let's move on this. So Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord, capital L-O-R-D. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. The same question comes to my mind every time I read this story. And that question is this, are we that stupid? Are we that stupid? Moses has been gone a really long time. But here's, here's something we see, okay? Let's, let's see if we can figure something out from this. The people look around, they're impatient, they don't know what to do, and so what do they decide to do? Something. We have to do something. We are waiting on God, and we're tired of waiting on God, and so we have to do something. Have we seen this before? Yes, we have. In the story. God is taking too long, Abraham and Isaac, or Abraham and Sarah say. We're going to help God do what needs to be done. It's taking too long. Let's help them. And there's something that is just, I've never seen this before. Um, they have been told more than once to not make an idol to not put any gods before, capital G, God. And the first thing they do is they need a God to go before them, which, think about this, they want something that they can literally put in front of them. Literally. And so they make this golden calf that they can literally look at and say, these are the gods that are leading us out of this place. But then listen to what Aaron says. He built an altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow will be a festival to the Lord. Somehow, 
They have built this calf that is part of now helping lead them out, but who are they still going to recognize? The Lord. So they have taken something that is completely other, powerful, unique in all of creation, the God who has made the world. They have tried to boil him down into something that they can understand and put in front of themselves, and they think, what? It's going to be okay. Because tomorrow we're going to worship God. And they get up the next day and they offer sacrifices to the golden calf. And then they party. I don't know. (laughs) I, I don't know. But it does make this question come to my head. Is there something about us That needs God to be smaller than he actually is. Are we uncomfortable with the great big God? With the God who is uncontained? With the God who is more than we are? And in our weakest, most fearful, most impatient moments, do we have a tendency to make God real small so that we feel better about whatever's going on. Kind of stings a little. Then the Lord said to Moses, go down because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. Notice how God's language has changed. Whose people are these? Your people. They're not my people. These are your people. Go down because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. What is God ready to do? He's done with this. Are you kidding me? I lead you out. I do all this for you. I'm sitting on the mountain and you make a golden calf. Give me a break. I am done And what does he say he'll do? It's the pattern that we've seen so far. I'll just start over with you. I'll just start over with you. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give you descendants all and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. 
God is clearly offended, and rightfully so. They've done the one thing he did not want them to do. But Moses does something really interesting here. He responds to God's anger. He responds to God's anger, and he points out two things to him. Number one, what is God's desire? To be known. That he may have his people, that they may be his God. And Moses says, look, if you kill all these people and start over now, guess what the world is going to say about you? That you led your people out here and killed them. Is that the story you want? And secondly, you promised that these people would have a land, that they would be a nation. You promised on yourself that this would happen. Can you break this promise that you made from the very core of who you are? And God says, no, no, I can't. And he lets his anger subside a little bit. And he decides to keep his promises. He made a promise to Abraham. He is a promise keeper. Moses was right in his challenges to God and God relented. But I want us to pause for a second. And sigh. Everybody sigh. Think about the position we have put God in. He has made a promise to people who don't care about him. But he can't break that promise because he promised on himself. He wants to be known. And it's just being thrown back in his face. To make a cow out of gold. God only wants what he rightfully deserves to be God. His people are not giving that to him, but because of who he is, he cannot turn his back on them. But this is key. Even though God relented from what he felt like doing, which was destroying everybody, he cannot simply ignore what happened either. So he calls Sends Moses down. Moses calls all of those who are loyal to God. The Levites come and he sends them out into the camp and the Levites put 3,000 people to death by the sword. The next day Moses said to the people, you have committed a great sin, but now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold, but now please forgive their sin. But if not, Then blot me out of the book you have written. The Lord replied to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Now go, lead the people to the place I spoke of, and my angel will go before you. However, when the time comes for me to punish, I will punish them for their sin. And the Lord struck the people with a plague because of what they did with the calf Aaron has made. Then the Lord said to Moses, leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt. He's still using that language. 
and go up to the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you because you are stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way. I, we've skipped over this part, I think. We have. We've skipped over this part. <clears throat> what does God say? Number one, I cannot pretend like what happened didn't happen. It did happen. And I'm upset about this. And so therefore, I will blot out those who have sinned against me. And in fact, he even sends a plague. Let me ask you this. Who does he send plagues to? His enemies, not his friends. He sends a plague to affect the camp. But then he does something which is so surprising. He says, go ahead and go. You can go to Canaan. I'm going to send my angel before you. Everything's going to be fine. I just can't go. Because if I spend one more minute in this car with you people, I'm going to pull over. And you just wait and see what happens if I do. I might destroy you. And God, get this, God is going to fulfill his promise, but he actually decides he can't do it himself. Why? Because he can't take one more minute of this. He can't take one more minute. He can't take one more minute. Before we say that God should be controlled, should not be emotional, before we say that God is redeeming and loving and forgiving, we see something that I don't really know what to do with. But God's relationship with his people is taking a toll on him. It is hurting him. To where at one point, this thing that he's been wanting to do and been promising for generations, he's like, you know what? I'm not even going to be there. It would be like planning your child's first birthday for a year spending thousands of dollars on it and then deciding, you know what? You guys go. I'm fine. I don't need to be a part of that. This is the state of mind that God is in. So it leads us to an important question. Who is God then? If he is all these things that we've said he is, which he is, by the way, loving, gracious, redeemer, friend, who else is he? Because I think in adopting him as our father, we have ignored other things about our God. He is a God of great goodness and compassion. But he is a God who is so great that you need to take him seriously. 
Then Moses said, now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. And I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. He is a God that is so great that you cannot look on him. You can't. You will explode. Or something to that effect. He is too much. He is too great. He is too big. And shame on us for treating him like he's small. But the second thing, which is just as important as every other thing we can say about God, is that he is jealous. He is jealous. He does not want to share you with anything else. And furthermore, because he's so stinking smart and knows everything, he knows when you're splitting time. You can't fool him. You can't. He knows when you're not serving him, when you're serving other gods. Moses bowed to the ground at once in worship. Lord, he said, if I have found favor in your eyes, then let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sin and take us as your inheritance. Then the Lord said, I am making a covenant with you before all your people. I will do wonders never before done in any nation in all the world. The people you live among will see how awesome is the work that I, the Lord, will do for you. Do not worship any other God for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. He is the one and only God and he will not tolerate being treated less than that. Particularly when every God is fake and made of the gold earrings you were wearing 10 minutes ago. No. But here's the miracle of this story. God listens to Moses. Can you imagine? God listens to Moses. When his people put him in the right place, as Moses did, when they treat him with respect, when they show him that he is God, he listens. And Moses says exactly what needs to be said. God, you can send us into the land, but it is you that makes us unique. It is you that makes us a people. It is you that gives us the power to move forward. 
We cannot claim a promised land without the God who made the promise. We need you to go with us or we will fail. And what does God say he will do? Well, all right then. Let's go. I will do great things. The whole world will know that I am God. I will give you the land. You will have everything that I promised to you. Just, just don't do this again. Because I'm a jealous God. And I know when your eyes are wandering to the left and to the right. A few things I want you to keep in mind from this story. Number one, it is not easy to be our God. Oh, we very easily put things in God's place. But it is not easy to be our God. And we have seen this proven to be true several times now throughout the story. But, miracle of miracles, we have a God who is not only a promise maker in the sense that he sees what we can become and vows to help us get there. He is also a promise keeper. That when we keep putting things in our own way and trying to push him out of our life, he will not let go of us. He will not let go of us. And we see something else that I am so grateful for. He is still God even when his people don't get it. Even when they don't understand, when they don't know, when they make all the wrong moves, he is still God. But when we do get it, when we acknowledge him, he will bless us more than what he even promised to us. He will show us his presence. He will be with us. And he will lead us into the place that he wants us to go. Church, we have an amazing God. We have an amazing God who is beyond our ability to understand wonderfully beyond our ability to know. And yet, this God decides to walk with us, to allow us to call him Father, call us his children, to watch us be idiots over and over and over again, and still bring us back, drag us back, beg us to come and be his children. He is the Lord. And there is no other God before him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this story which speaks to us in all of the right and all the wrong ways. For God, I see myself in this. I see the ways that I have put other things in front of you. I see the ways that I have played with you being my God. Father, may we live as those who know that you are the one true living God, the unapproachable, the unimaginable, the one who is beyond our ability to comprehend or understand. And God, may we revel in the wonder of the fact that you love us as we are and you invite us to be your children. You are loving and redeeming and forgiving and set apart and mighty and powerful.
in ways that we can never know. Thank you for being big. May we stop making you small. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you need for prayers or encouragement this morning, you want to know this God who loves you, we invite you to come forward as we stand and sing this.